You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 7 this morning. Hebrews 11, 4 through 7. And really quick, while you're turning there, I promise I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but I'm just a little bit curious. Would you raise your hand if you are an oldest child or an only child? I'm just curious. This is like a decent random sample. So raise it high. Oldest child or only child? Right, it's a little more than I thought. All right, I just want to take this opportunity to acknowledge that if you did not raise your hand, Speaking as an oldest child, you have no idea how easy you had it. There's no way you can appreciate what you had, because you don't know. You don't know what it was like to have no one. Just think, every moment, everything you experienced, there was always, you always had your older brother or your older sister, at least one. Who had, who had gone through whatever, every single moment, even still right now, uh, I mean, I, you can think back or you can think, what, I want, what, what, did, what, would, what did my older, I wonder how they went through this. You do, you do this without even thinking. I had none of that. Those of us who raised our hands, we had no, none, no experience like that. No example for us. We had to do it all first. It's really nice to have examples to look, look to. It's really nice to know there's someone who has been in a situation like this before. And this morning we're going to look at some examples, some people who have gone before us, some people who we can look to as older brothers, so to speak, in, in the faith. Hebrews 11, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The author of Hebrews, as we've been seeing the last few Sundays wants us to persevere in our faith, to endure in our faith. He doesn't want us to throw away our confidence, which can be very easy to do when you're asking, well, when you're enduring things that are hard. Uh, When you're enduring things that are hard, it's easy to ask questions like, 
Is God really good? Is God keeping good things from me? Is God the the one that my faith and confidence should be in? Or maybe, maybe there's another way to be truly blessed. Maybe there's another way to be truly free. You don't ask those questions when things are are fine. We ask those questions when when we're grieved by by various trials. Man, is there and maybe there's another way. But the author of Hebrews doesn't want us to throw away our our confidence. He wants us to endure in faith so that we will receive God's promises. And in order to encourage these Christians in verses 1 through 3, he points us to the nature of faith. The fact that faith reaches out for things that are out of reach. It reaches out in hope of the things that God has revealed to us and promised to us. And then in verses 4 through 7, he continues to provide examples of what faith looks like. And as we focus on these verses, we're going to consider the anatomy of faith. He gives a fuller description of what faith looks like in verse 6. We need to understand the anatomy of faith if we're going to exercise faith. Then we're going to look at the examples of faith that are given here. In this paragraph, it's Abel and Enoch and Noah. And end very, very briefly with seeking the commendation of faith. At the end of the day, we don't want faith as an end in itself. There's sort of a general optimistic outlook and framework about the future. We want the kind of faith that God commends. Because at the end of the day, it's His commendation that really matters. So first we need to understand the anatomy of, of faith. We saw last week in verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and faith is engaged. You engage your faith when you reach out for what you believe and what you hope for on the basis of God-given reason and God-given revelation. But then the anatomy of faith is further described here in verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So, once again, the importance of faith is underlined here. Apart from faith, we cannot please God. There's no pleasing God. There's no pleasing the God who made you who is sovereign over your life. There's no pleasing Him apart from faith. Faith must characterize those who draw near to God. Drawing near to God is a theme in Hebrews. It's, it's, it's associated with worship. We're not completely disconnected here from, from chapter 9. Those who don't throw away their confidence in God's promises, they draw near to God in faith-filled worship, believing two things, that He exists and that He rewards. He exists and He rewards. Now this first part here, existing, we might ask, isn't, isn't that obvious? Is that really necessary to, is it really necessary to say? I mean, obviously you can't have faith in God if you don't believe that He, he exists. The wording here gives a little bit uh, of, a, of a deeper sense, though, what, what that's saying. Obviously we need to believe that He exists, but the wording here, the original wording, it's, it's the verb to be. So it's not so much that he exists. You could literally translate it, for it is necessary to believe that he is. 
he is. This is the same verb that God uses in Hebrew to reveal himself to Moses. So when Moses asks what he should say, when the people ask what God's name is, God responds to Moses, I am who I am. I am, he says, is his name. He says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, or has sent me to you. So God reveals himself to be. He is the one to be. And this is the same Greek verb that Jesus uses in reference to that same passage in, in Exodus 3 to identify himself with God the Father. So before the Jews pick up stones to throw at him, Jesus says in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the name of God, or what some have called the covenant name of God, the name that is reserved for his people. And it, and it uh, points to one of the attributes of God that isn't talked about as much because it's pretty abstract and it, and it kind of blows our minds, but it's called God's aseity. Christians confess that God is ase, which means that he is from himself. So one of the glorious attributes of who God is that doesn't really even make sense to us, is that for God, existence is an attribute. Existence is an attribute. That's not true for you and me, and it's not true for you and me because we all have a birthday. God has no birthday. Necessary to God's being is existence. And there's no other being who's like this. So when he writes that faith includes that he that we believe that He exists. It's more than this, we, we acknowledge His existence. It means that we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It means that we believe in the God who revealed Himself to Moses and rescued His people out of Egypt. It means that we believe in the triune God who's revealed Himself in Christ. That's what it means to believe that He is or that He exists. Generic faith in a higher power does not please God. Generic faith in a higher power does not please God. Mere theism, the belief in one God, does not please God. You must believe that He exists. He is a particular being. And this means that our faith is directed at a a particular object. Human beings exercise faith every day. All human beings do. Every human being exercises faith for example, like we saw last week in, in the creation of the world, when there's no one there to see that or witness that, most human beings believe that God even exists. But that doesn't mean that they're drawing near to the one true God. In order to please God, we must draw near believing that He exists. But just as important is that we, we must believe that He rewards. It's a sad reality, but you, you think about it. Many people believe in a God. A lot of people would acknowledge a God. Many people would even be, acknowledge a God closely described to the God in Scripture. And then you even have people who would affirm the existence of the triune God of Scripture, but they don't believe that He's good. They don't believe what Psalm 136 repeats 26 times, that His steadfast love endures forever. They might believe what the historic catechisms 
teach that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, that, 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 might, that might be something they affirm, but they don't believe in spite of all those glorious attributes that goodness is also attached to who he is. They don't love him or trust him. And then as a result, they walk around in in despair and guilt because he's infinite and eternal and unchangeable and holy. But he's not good. So therefore, you walk around in despair and in guilt, coping with your guilt with whatever comforts you most. Or if you're not walking around in despair and guilt, you walk around bitter at God, rehearsing the evidence, rehearsing your case, against him for why he has not been good to you. I've had many conversations with people like that. And that's in that case, it's the same thing. Then you're just coping with your bitterness with what comforts you most. And we do this too. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt that he rewards those who seek him. The Apostle John ends his first letter, 1 John, with the words, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Every time. He says that because we, we, that's, that's an instruction that actually should inform our, our Christian lives. And it informs our Christian lives because every time we seek comfort and security in false gods, we're failing to believe that God rewards those who seek Him. We're looking for another kind of reward or another kind of rewarder. And there's a lot of what John Piper calls bitter providence in our lives. The Christian life is filled with bitter providences from one degree to to another. God has not promised us a life free of Suffering and then the recipients of this this letter to the Hebrews, as we saw, they 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 endured the the plundering of their personal property. And you might be struggling with something right now, any number of different things. People right here this morning are struggling with. Might cause us to question: Is this is God really being good to me in light of in light of this this struggle? That even in our trials, and actually especially in our trials, we can please God. That's what the author is telling us here. We can please Him. But second, if we're going to endure, if we're going to take this seriously, if we're going to draw near to God believing He exists and that He is a rewarder, we can't, I mean, once you just walk out of here resolved, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to believe He's a rewarder. But the author here gives us some some examples of faith. Three examples in this paragraph. And we start with, with Abel. Right? Abel is the second child born after Cain to, to Adam and Eve. It's not a very long explanation of who he is in Genesis 4, in beginning in verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. 
And the, the first question, the very natural question to ask when we read that passage is, why? Why was Abel's sacrifice, why was his offering accepted and Cain's wasn't? The text doesn't give us an explicit explanation. Right? Especially in our own day and age. This, 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 we struggle with this. This doesn't make sense. Here we've got two brothers. They're both living their truth. Right? They're both following their heart. Abel followed his heart and he became a shepherd. Cain followed his heart. He became a farmer. I mean, this, these, are, these are good good things. And then they both brought their offerings from their work. You know, what, what's God's problem here? The problem with the follow your heart uh, mentality is that it assumes your, your greatest problem is that you, your loss in your, in your heart needs to lead you to what you need to find. But Christianity claims your biggest problem isn't your, that you're lost and you need to find your deeper meaning and your deeper purpose. Your biggest problem is that you're sinful and that you deserve death. And it seems that Abel understood this. Abel's offering was an animal sacrifice. The text does mention that his sacrifice, it included the fat portions. And you can read in Leviticus how God, in the prescriptions for the burnt offerings for the people of Israel, that God demanded, he said, the fat portions are reserved for, for me. They were, offered to, offer, they were to offer all the fat to, to the Lord when they did their burnt offering. So Abel's offering appears to be superior because it's an animal Offering, in, in other words, Abel brought blood. But that isn't specifically what the author of Hebrews praises him for. It's true. There's there's a difference in in their offerings. But the but but the author of Hebrews doesn't seem to be giving us something as simple as well. Cain got it right and Abel got it wrong. If that was the case. If that was the case, the lesson for us would be simple. Bring the right offering to God and be accepted. Uh, bring the wrong offering and don't be accepted. But just as long as you bring the right thing, do the right thing, follow the instructions, God will commend you. And it's really easy to fall into that trap. It's really, that, that, it's really easy to start resonating with that kind of thinking. God must be pretty, he must be pretty pleased with me. After all, I'm doing things the right way. Look at all these people around me. I don't see them offering the fat portions. Don't they know that they're supposed to be doing that? Look how shallow and petty they are with their offerings. That's not, that's not how Abel's put forward to us as, a, as an example. The message of Hebrews 11 is not if you offer the right offering, God will accept you. No, what, what does the text say? Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice, through which he was commended as righteous. This, this is what has always been controversial and scandalous and offensive about Christianity. God counts you righteous not because of your works. He counts you righteous not because of your offerings. He counts you righteous because of your faith. It's not that works don't matter. Abel's sacrifice did matter. There's a sense in which 
his, his offering is more proper, is, 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 uh, it matches with reality more than, more than Cain's does, but it's not the basis of your righteousness. Your superior offerings are not what God looks at to accept you. They don't make you better. Abel is accepted. Abel is commended because of his faith. And Abel's faith then informed how he sought God, how he drew near to God. Abel's sacrifice indicated what kind of faith he had. It demonstrated his animal sacrifice, his, the fact that he brought blood indicates, it demonstrates for us that he believed that he was sinful. He acknowledged his sin. It demonstrated that he, he believed his sin deserved death. So he brings something to die. It demonstrated that he believed unless there was a substitute, he is the one who should be condemned. And his offering demonstrated that he believed in the promise that God made to his parents, Adam and Eve. He believed that there was a snake-crushing, sin-curing Savior to come. That is the kind of faith that God commends. That is the kind of offering God commends, one that believes that God exists and that He rewards those who acknowledge their sin and draw near to Him on the basis of the righteousness of another and on the sacrifice of another. That's what Abel did. And so the question is, is that you? Do you draw near to God on the basis of your superior offering on your superior works, your superior morality or theology or spirituality. And if you do, this passage is a a comfort. This passage is, is, is a warning to you. If that is the case for you, you may have more in common with Cain than with Abel. Cain killed his brother in his anger and in his pride and in his jealousy. He made his brother the first martyr. But despite that, despite the fact that Abel's been dead all these years, the the author of Hebrews tells us that his faith still speaks and instructs us. Is your only hope of reward the sacrifice of another? Is your only hope of righteousness the kind that comes because because of faith? We know the one that Abel believed in by faith. It's because of Christ that we can do what Abel did, that we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Abel reminds us that the kind of faith that is commended, the kind of faith that God justifies, is faith that comes acknowledging we need a Savior. It comes acknowledging we are sinful. So Abel reminds us of the kind of faith that justifies us before God. Enoch reminds us of the kind of faith that pleases God. We read about Abel's great, 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 great nephew, Enoch, in Genesis chapter 5. Despite the fact that Enoch appears multiple times in in extra-biblical literature and in uh, some of the apocryphal books, 
uh, we just notice here that, that the author of Hebrews only acknowledges uh, what's written about Enoch in the book of Genesis. Just instructive, I think, for us in, in, uh, in how much weight to give to extra-biblical literature. The author of, he- author of Hebrews only points to what's written about Enoch in Genesis. Genesis 5, starting in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So although we know very little about Enoch, you know, this comes in a genealogy in Genesis 5, uh, the, the descendants of uh, Adam and Eve's son, Seth. Uh, we just get a couple other comments, passing comments here in the series of that, that, that genealogy. But what we do know about him is, is very, very important. We're, we're told about him the most important thing about him. And we know it's important because the author of Genesis, Moses, mentions it twice. Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. The reason this is so important is because this is what you and I were made for. Enoch did what he was made for. Two mistakes that we, we make. In our, in our sin, is we seek to walk with other gods or we seek God for our own ends and purposes not to walk with Him. He's the source of what we truly desire and truly want. He isn't the reward in and of Him Himself. But we were made, we we're the kind of creatures that were made to walk with our Creator, to walk in relation to our Creator. God is a relational being. He has been from eternity, and He made human beings in His image to be in relation to Him. And this is what Enoch did. Consider what Micah writes in in Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then Micah writes in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The author of Hebrews uses a translation of the Old Testament that, that says Enoch pleased God rather than walked with him. You can see that in verse 5 here, Hebrews 11. Uh, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. The differences here, they're, they're, these are differences in translation more than differences in, in meaning. Uh, these two things go together. Walking with God is what pleases God, being that he's our creator and this is what he created us for. Walking with God pleases God. And this is why, like Abel, God commended Enoch. Enoch walked with God believing by faith that God existed and believing by faith that he rewards those who seek him. And Enoch received a very particular, special kind of reward as he walked with God. Enoch teaches us there's an important lesson, or I should say God uses Enoch to teach us an important lesson, which is that walking with God or faith is connected 
to escaping death. Our faith in God is connected to escaping death. All of us are liable to physical death because of the covenant God made with Adam in the garden that Adam broke, and then as a result, all of Adam's posterity has inherited physical death. That's what happens. That's, that's why we've just got a record. That's why even the genealogy in Genesis 5 there, uh, Seth's genealogy is someone lived. Now, they lived longer than, than we tend to live. Uh, but he lived, and then he died. And then he lived, and then he died. And then his son lived, and, and he died. And we just have this record again and again and again. But there was always hope. There was always hope. And, and Enoch had this hope that God promised that he would send one to crush the serpent. And in doing so, he was promising that there was still hope of reward despite the fact that Adam had broken God's law, that Adam had, had not achieved what God offered to him, and that God had given him the curses associated with what he promised him because of Adam's sin. But there was still hope, there was still hope of reward despite the fact that that had happened because God had promised Adam and Eve that there would be one who would come who would end the serpent's reign. And so ever since Genesis 3, there's been two groups of people. There's been those who trusted God by faith and put their hope in His promises. And there's been those who reject God's promises and put their faith elsewhere. A lot of times we get the the categories that are mixed up. We think there's two kinds of people. There's the good ones and there's the bad ones. That's not what Christianity teaches. It's, there's bad ones who put their hope in God's promises and there's bad ones who reject God's promises and put their faith elsewhere. Enoch was a bad one, but who put his faith in God, who believed that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him and in light of that, God spared Enoch physical death. And in doing so, God teaches us those who put their hope in God escape death. Now, for all of us, it's not physical death. It's the even worse death, which is spiritual, eternal death. Enoch teaches us to put our hope in Christ, who the author of Hebrews describes like this back in chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Enoch teaches us that faith and escaping death go together for those who have faith in Christ, who delivers us from death and lifelong slavery. So Abel reminds us of the kind of faith that justifies us before God. Enoch reminds us of the kind of faith that pleases God. And then third, Noah reminds us of the kind of faith, or of the faith that receives an inheritance from God. So I'm going to assume that you know the story of Noah. Uh, there's there's uh, evidence to show that people who've never even uh, received biblical revelation know who Noah is all over the world. Uh, in one commentary I read, uh, a case that was made that our English word man comes from deliver, uh, derivatives of the name Noah. 
So every one of us, similar to Adam and Eve, every one of us is a descendant of, of, of Noah. So in this case, this is a grandfather whose faith is being presented to us as an example in Hebrews 11. Noah is like Enoch, and he's like Abel. According to Genesis 6, Noah was righteous, like Abel was counted righteous. And according to Genesis 6-9, Noah, it says, walked with God. So these, these three have, have things in common, and we're being told that that thing that they have in common is their faith. Verse 7 of Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here we see that Noah's faith, it did three things. It worked, it condemned, and it inherited. Noah's faith worked, condemned, and inherited. And by his example, that's what our faith can and should do also. Noah's faith worked, first of all. And so to put it somewhat provocatively, Noah spent 120 years building a boat in the desert. He spent 120 years building a boat in the desert. I know we're going to have some more time in the coming weeks as Sam gets into Genesis to think about this, but just, and we just, we just assume this story and it's got the animals and it's got the rainbow and stuff, but 120 years building a boat in the desert. This boat was huge. It was the size of a massive building. People, people noticed what he was doing. He didn't build it fast, and he didn't build it small. All right, And why did he build it? Why did he build this boat? He built it, the text says, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. No one, including Noah, had a category for a flood of this magnitude. No one, they didn't have a category for a, an, any kind of event like this. Genesis 7, describing the flood, describes that in verse 19, that the, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. No one had ever seen anything like this before. No one had ever built a boat like any like this before. There, there was no reason to build a boat like this. Uh, this was seemingly incredibly irrational. The only reason to do something like this is because God had warned him. God had spoken. And Noah believed God's word. Noah put his faith in God's word. He had a, to use the words of verse 1, he had a conviction of things not seen. He believed that God existed. Therefore, God had the power to judge and destroy the earth. And also, because he believed that God existed, he believed that God had the right to judge and destroy the earth. But then he also believed that God rewards those who seek him. So taking God at his word, he built. And he built for 120 years. For a whole one of our lifetimes, he looked insane. How long would you 
persevere looking crazy to everyone around you. He did it longer than any of us will live. And it says his faith condemned the world. Now, his faith condemning the world, this this was more of an indirect result of his faith rather than a direct result of his faith. But the reality is, after 120 years, the waters rose And the result of that one man's faith was that one family was safe inside this object of ridicule and every other human being was judged and condemned. Now they were not innocent. Every human being who died in the flood was guilty in Adam. They knew God but did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for earthly things. But the faith of Noah that that they likely scorned and ridiculed and laughed at and probably worse for decade upon decade upon decade, that faith ultimately drowned them in God's judgment. But as it condemned them, It gave Noah an inheritance. Noah became, it says in verse 7, an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. In Christianity, this is what faith does. Putting your faith in God, receiving His word, receiving His promises, believing that He exists and rewards those who seek Him. It not only grants you access to Him, but it makes you an heir in His household. John 1.12, but to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. And Paul writes in Romans 8, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are not righteous on our own. You are not Righteous. What unites everybody in this room this morning is not our righteousness. What unites us in this room is our guilt. That is the, the, the one thing each one of us has in common is our guilt. The question for you is this, do you believe? Do you believe that you're guilty? Do you accept that you're guilty? Do you accept that there is a problem between you and the God who made you, that you are not okay with Him apart from Christ? Do you accept that God is just in judging the people He judged in the flood? The only path to righteousness for us is is by faith. It's by faith that we inherit the righteousness that comes. We become heirs of the righteousness that comes through union with Christ. Hebrews 1-2 describes Jesus as he whom was appointed the heir of all things. The only way you become an heir of righteousness is being united to the heir of all things, who is Christ. Noah was not a perfect man. We know he wasn't. Uh, his Some of his sins are laid out for us in in Scripture. But Noah was righteous by faith. 
So by faith he worked, by faith he condemned, and by faith he inherited the righteousness that comes in Christ. So, third and finally, in light of these examples, what should we do? We should seek the commendation that Abel and Enoch and Noah received. We should seek the commendation that comes by faith. The author of Hebrews, he wants us to endure. He knows that the time between Christ's first coming and second coming are difficult. He knows that the time between our justification and our glorification is marked sometimes by the painful process of sanctification. He knows that things are not easy. He knows that it's not enjoyable to endure the plundering of your property and to have the world scorn you for your faith in something that it cannot clearly see is going to happen. That they cannot clearly see the judgment that is, is to happen. The author of Hebrews knows that that is not experientially an easy thing to endure. He wants us, though, to receive God's reward. He wants us to see what God has promised, and so he puts forward here these examples. We are not the first people to endure something like this. Abel and Enoch and Noah, they are like us. They were all born east of Eden in a fallen world. They all endured in faith, and their faith is to be emulated. So what do we learn from their examples? Just, we just start with the fact that these are three different people. They're not all the same. They have things alike, but they're, they're different. They lived at different times. They had different experiences. God puts us in different circumstances. Abel lived at a time after the fall, before the earth was, was populated. All right, He didn't have a lot of friends to go out neighborhood kids to go and, and, and play with. Enoch, on the other hand, he lived at a time when peoples were increasing on the earth. Two very different life experiences for Enoch and, and, and Abel. Noah lived when evil had increased to such a degree that God decided to judge the earth. You can only imagine what the times were like for Noah. Now, I don't know if our time and our circumstances are more like Enoch's or Noah, but, but the reality is their faith is what we need to be concerned about rather than their particular circumstances. But what we learn as we learn from their, their differences, we can also learn something that could be a hard lesson to learn, which is that God, He uses different people for different circumstances and for different, or He uses the different circumstances for different purposes. Think about it. All three of these people, they're, they're, they're all real but think of how God used their lives in, in different ways. The kind of different kinds of, of circumstances faith came to be relevant in. This is hard. Part of believing that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him is accepting His sovereign plan for your life. God's plan for Abel's life was early death at the hands of his brother. That's just the, that's the fact. But think of that in contrast to Enoch. God's plan for Enoch was that he would live 365 years and then never see physical death. Think of the contrast between those two. Both were men of faith. Both are examples to us. Both, for both, their only hope was Christ. 
But God had very different designs for their lives, didn't he? God's plan for Noah was another kind of plan. His plan for Noah was to watch the whole world drown. Every one of us is a different person created in the image of God. We all have a different set of of circumstances. We are all subject to God's sovereign plan for our lives, but we all have the same instructions. We all have the same thing offered to us, which is trust God by faith. Abel teaches us to approach God with blood by faith. And we know that ultimately that is the blood of Christ. Enoch teaches us to walk with God by faith. And if we do that, our stories won't end in death like Christ. Noah teaches us to trust God's words and warnings by faith. And doing so will mean salvation in the ark of Christ. Your faith is in something. Your faith is in someone. And every moment of every day, your faith is is holding on somewhere. The question is where, or to what, or to whom. It's a blessing to have examples as we walk through the perils of, of this life, as we walk through trials, as we're grieved by various trials, as, as Peter writes. And it's a blessing. It's, it's in God's goodness and kindness that he gives us examples of people who made it through difficult circumstances. It's a blessing to know that you're not the only one who believes that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The question is, who or what are you seeking? Let's pray. Father, we want to seek You. But we have to acknowledge this before you because we spend much time and emotion seeking other things. It's hard to be confident about things that we cannot see. It's hard to be assured of things that we're still hoping for. And yet, where is there anywhere more reliable to rest our hope? In whom is there anyone more reliable to place our faith? We know what it's like to be let down. But you will never let us down. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We have faith, but strengthen our faith. Father, when we're troubled, help us by faith. Like the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah. Help us trust in Christ alone. Help us remember that you are good. Help us rejoice that Christ is risen from the dead so that we can look forward to the day when our hope springs eternal. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.